This week's TribCast is sponsored by University of Houston College of Nursing. We are committed to training the next generation of nurses to enter the workforce faster and more prepared to ensure quality health care for all. Find out more at uh.edu slash nursing. And Texas Biomed pioneers and shares scientific breakthroughs that protect our communities. Health starts with science. Health starts at Texas Biomed. Visit txbiomed.org for more. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for May 12th, 2023. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. It's been a very busy week in Texas news uh, since the last time we joined, um, of course, the mass shooting in Allen. Uh, We will be having Alejandro Serrano, one of our reporters covering gun laws this legislative session, to talk more about that later. Um, But we've also had major developments in the Texas legislative session and the lifting of Title 42, the pandemic era health uh, order that allowed the Biden administration and previously the Trump administration to expel migrants at the southern border. Talking with us about that today is our editor who oversees immigration coverage, Dave Harmon. Hey, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. So very quickly, um, I think most people will know this, but give us a quick rundown of what Title 42 was and and how it worked. Sure. Title 42 is a a public health order that the Trump administration invoked for the first time ever in March 2020 as the COVID pandemic was beginning. And it was used to allow immigration authorities to quickly process and remove migrants from the southern border without allowing them to to claim asylum. Um, The stated intent was to prevent people from other countries bringing COVID into the country and allowing us to expel them uh, before that could happen. Right. And so the reason that this is being lifted, uh, it was lifted late last night around 11 o'clock central time, 10 o'clock mountain time where El Paso is, is because, you know, the Biden administration more broadly is lifting the COVID emergency. Right. So you can no longer have the emergency power to kind of enforce Title 42 if there is no longer an official emergency here. And what we saw, you know, the I feel like the the buildup, the hype around this all week was expecting, you know, mass numbers of people crossing the border. Now that this order was in place, we saw, you know, in the lead up, uh, multiple local jurisdictions around the border declaring emergencies. Um, and we saw big crowds of people crossing over uh, and, you know, in the streets of cities like El Paso and Brownsville uh, in, in the days leading up to this. So that all kind of set up for this uh, 11 o'clock or in the case of El Paso, 10 o'clock kind of lifting of the order where, you know, us and, and many other media outlets ready to watch for kind of what was anticipated a major influx of, of people. What ended up happening? What ended up happening? Uh it was not what a lot of people expected or feared. Um, we've seen large numbers of migrants crossing the river over the past week. 
Uh, looks like a lot of people tried to enter before Title 42 ended. Uh, that happened again last night. Uh, Uriel Garcia, our, our border and immigration reporter in El Paso, was in Ciudad Juarez across the river and saw once again hundreds of people lined up on the U.S. side of the river waiting to be apprehended and processed. Uh, I think their hope was that they would be paroled, um, which is a term, basically it means they would be released into the country uh, if they promised to report to an immigration court. Um, and then when the actual deadline came, not much really changed. Uh, on the Mexican side of the river, Uriel told me that there were a lot of reporters and very few migrants. So I think everybody who intended to cross did it earlier in the evening. Uh, they queued up. There was a line for men and another line for women and children. It was pretty calm and pretty orderly. And when the deadline passed, Border Patrol began uh, letting people through a gate in the border wall in small groups. And I right. think we saw that kind of repeated up and down the, the southern border. Can you explain what the difference is now? So, you know, what, what we're seeing right at the border and have been seeing for years is people showing up, right, crossing the border, sometimes illegally, sometimes at, at ports of entry, and not necessarily kind of going out into the, you know, broader America, uh, trying to be seen uh, or, or not be seen by Border Patrol, although I, I'm sure that is still happening as well, too. But a lot of people kind of essentially walking up to Border Patrol and asking for asylum, right? Um, that then setting that process where they might be released on parole or in Title 42, allowing them to be released, um, you know, uh, back into Mexico or elsewhere, uh, so what is different now on May 12th than what may have happened if you, you know, turned yourself into Border Patrol May 6th? Like what is how how are these processes different and how does that affect the, the migrants who are crossing over? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. We're basically going back to pre-pandemic immigration rules with some tweaks by the Biden administration. They were anticipating potentially a mass of people arriving at the border when Title 42 ended. So they have added some features to the, the old system that was in place uh, before the pandemic. It's a carrot and stick approach. Um, the carrot is we will provide you with ways to request asylum without going to the border, without going to a port of entry or crossing the river and surrendering. Mm -hmm. uh, one of those is a cell phone app to make appointments, which migrants have been complaining just crashes constantly. I think they they only offered about a 10 minute window to grab one of the 740 appointments available each day along a 2000 mile border. Uh, the administration is also setting up uh, offices in a couple of countries. Colombia is one of them where people can apply for an appointment uh, from their own countries. The idea is they're trying to tell migrants, don't come to the border and surrender, because if you do, 
without Title 42 in place, you are now more likely to just be deported. Um, and in many cases, they're telling people, we're not going to let you claim asylum, or you could get barred from the country for five years for illegal entry. So it, it's kind of back to the old policy of you know punishing people for illegal entry, um, and at the same time trying to give them some new ways to to apply for asylum um, without without overwhelming uh, border patrol resources at the border. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of this really highlights how little control the Biden administration or really whoever is in charge at the time has over some of the things that can kind of spur the political outrage or the political focus, right? I mean, you know, people coming up to this country and a lot of times being driven by, you know, economic conditions or or natural disasters or things like that in their home countries. Um, you have, you know, I've been reading a lot about people kind of arriving at the border based on misinformation being spread by uh, human sl- smugglers or other basically saying, you know, Title 42 is lifting, they'll let you in now, you know, and and that driving people in the Biden administration having trouble kind of um, uh, dealing with that. Um, and then, you know, the that being said, you have areas you know people along the border I, I mentioned earlier areas in el paso talking about you know shelters being full people having to sleep in the streets uh brownsville having similar you know the rio grande valley and everything like that i mean how much is is my assessment of that right i mean that the, the the biden administration is is somewhat limited and they can what they can actually do about kind of maintaining these these crises that that are happening on the on these in these border communities uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they they are up against a, a really a, a a global problem and a global issue using you know what tools they have, um, and at the same time, every policy they try to change or introduce uh, is almost uniformly being challenged in court by Republican attorney generals, governors. Um, so, uh, you know, some of their tools have been, uh, stopped by courts that, that happened last night when a Florida judge, uh, uh, put in a temporary injunction preventing them from paroling people into the country without having, uh, you know, a court date. So that's, that's one less tool they have to manage this influx, um, but migration is a global problem, as you said. Uh, it's sparked by big problems in country. We're seeing a ton of Venezuelans coming to the border right now because that country has you know, famously gone into economic collapse. Uh, the, politically, it's a mess. Uh, Haiti, same thing. Um, you know, the government essentially collapsed in that country, and we saw a huge number of Haitians come to our border. Mm-hmm. Um, and on and on, you know, you look at it, you look at a part of the world that's in trouble, uh, natural disasters also play into this droughts play into this. And America is still the place lots of people want to go. Uh, and we have a very kind of clunky, clumsy, um, patchwork system for, for handling the numbers that we've been seeing in recent years. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and kind of, I think an unwillingness to accept that those numbers might keep coming, right? Because in order to kind of get past that clunky system, you would need to, you know, build up capacity or, or, or take other steps to, to, to address that. I want to ask a little bit about kind of the next steps. You mentioned this, this judge's ruling based in Florida, you know, um, kind of blocking the um, paroling of, of migrants. Um, you, you mentioned how the number of people crossing over so far and the, you know, a little bit over 12 hours since this title uh, 42 is lifted being maybe not the kind of rush that we were expecting. Does that mean we're out of the woods here from crises? What, like what should we be watching over the next 24 or 36, you know, even weeks and months uh, of this kind of new reality along the border? Yeah. Have they prepared enough for the numbers that they're seeing? Yeah. Um, even though it wasn't a tidal wave last night, it was a significant number of people crossing the border. I mean, these are these are daily records that that we've been seeing in, in the last week or so. Mm -hmm. uh, border patrol facilities can only hold so many people. Uh, there was uh, there was a lot of news coverage in years past when those facilities got overwhelmed and and we had migrants in overcrowded, caged enclosures. Um, we're going to be watching to see if the border patrol facilities can handle this influx. Um, how many people are they deporting outright and how many people are they releasing into communities? Because uh, in El Paso, for example, you know, they have a shelter system, but they can only handle so many people. Um, the other thing that I think we should watch is with the Biden administration doing kind of a PR blitz, discouraging migrants from coming to the border, and migrants coming regardless because of the forces you talked about in their home countries. Yeah. Is this going to kind of usher in a period where people are, again, looking for smugglers and trying to sneak across the border and evade Border Patrol, which is, you know, how a lot of people have gotten into this country historically? Yeah. yeah. Um, as you said, they've they've recently been more likely to cross at a bridge or between the bridges in Texas and surrender to Border Patrol. But if they are afraid they're going to get deported or criminally charged or barred from claiming asylum, they may resort to trying to sneak across the border uh, and just live and work in the country without documents. Yep. So let's talk just briefly about the role Texas is playing. Um, Governor Abbott held a press conference at the beginning of this week saying he was spending, sending, you know, a couple of kind of tactical units down to the border, not a major escalation of what he kind of has already sent down to the border. There's been images of um, National Guard folks kind of, you know, turning people away, like not essentially not letting them cross. Um, some have argued that that's kind of an escalation and going kind of beyond what the state um, should be doing in terms of enforcing uh, the laws. How would you kind of summarize uh, the Abbott administration or the state of Texas response to, to to the lifting of Title 42 so far? Well, I mean, it's another kind of show of force at, at the border. This is uh, 
this has been the pattern since Joe Biden became president. Um, the governor and the state of Texas have spent a lot of money and sent a lot of state troopers and National Guard to the border, claiming that the federal government isn't doing its job and isn't controlling the border. Uh, so this is kind of just the most recent installment of that strategy. Uh, we did, uh, Uriella did, see National Guard at the at the river last night uh, telling people they couldn't cross into U.S. territory. Um, so to help you visualize this, there's the Rio Grande, and then there was a, a string of concertina wire pretty close to the river. And then beyond the concertina wire was the border wall. So there were hundreds of people lined up between the wire and the wall waiting for Border Patrol to let them through a gate. Meanwhile, you had the National Guard kind of at the edge of the river telling people who were waiting across the river, no, you can't come in. Um, I, we're not positive those were, were state-deployed guard uh, because mm -hmm. the Biden administration also uh, deployed guard. Our guess is that they were state because the uh, the troops that Biden sent were supposed to be kind of helping with transportation and logistics and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the, the state has in recent years um, really put a premium on shows of force at the river. Uh, you know, there were images uh, a couple of years ago of state troopers forming a lot with a line of vehicles um, at the river when we had large groups of migrants, you know, crossing it, trying to cross at Eagle Pass and other crossings. Um, so, th yeah, this looks like kind of another state show of force. All right. Well, we will continue to watch this. I know that uh, things are changing, you know, by the hour and, and you are you continue to watch them. So thank you, Dave, for uh, for joining us for the to give us the latest update. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, let's pause to hear a message from our sponsor. The U.S. is home to BP's largest workforce in the world. And we've invested more than $140 billion in America since 2005. We support more than 240,000 jobs here. A workforce aiming to deliver the energy America needs today while developing lower carbon alternatives. See how we're investing in America at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, so joining us now is Alejandro Serrano. Alejandro has been covering uh, gun legislation in the Texas legislative session uh, this year. Hey, Alejandro, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was a dramatic week in the Texas House following a, you know, pretty terrible weekend um, in which, you know, uh, a, a gunman at an Allen shop, shopping mall opened fire, killing eight people, wounding many others. This, of course, kind of reignited the debate around guns in this state right around an important time um, for that debate in the legislature this week. Uh, you know, being the deadline for the House to pass out uh, House bills in, in the chamber in order for them to, you know, have a chance of becoming law during this legislative se session. Well, Hunter, you have specifically been following the, what, you know, we've been kind of calling the raise the age bill, the bill to raise the age to buy a semi-automatic rifle from 18 to 21. This has been particularly pushed 
by Uvalde families, uh, families of uh, victims in the Uvalde shooting. Can you tell us a little bit about the bill, who's pushing for it, and and, and why this is so important to the Uvalde families? Sure. Yeah. So the the main bill, when we refer to the bill, raised the ages house bill in 2744 from Tracy King, um, the representative from Uvalde. Um, it essentially, in simple terms, would um, prohibit selling certain semi-automatic rifles to um, people younger than 21. And it has several exemptions um, that King said he added after hearing from constituents who are concerned, such as sporting or hunting or what have you. Um, but this kind of has been like a, a main um, ask of Uvalde family since the shooting, um, like really like almost immediately after the shooting, when it became clear that over the summer that the gunman had tried purchasing um, rifles, like the ones he used, AR-15 style. Um, and he bought the two that he had days after turning 18, as well as a bunch of ammunition that he then used in the shooting. So it becomes a case where um, families contend and, and Representative King as well, that they really believe this had this bill been a law last year, it could have potentially thwarted this shooting. Right. And, and and we've basically seen these families coming to the Capitol, you know, throughout the session, um, you know, speaking at rallies. Um, you know, we've seen children who were in the school kind of speaking at rallies, speaking to legislators, knocking on doors and everything like that. That led to, but, you know, essentially like little action, right? There was a, a committee hearing, you know, some thought even that was a, an impressive step in, in kind of gun-friendly Texas, but then the bill had been kind of paused, um, you know, beyond that hearing, did not receive a vote. The deadline to vote bills out of committee was on Monday, and we kind of came into this week then with the Allen shooting thrusting this issue back into the top of minds. Tell us what happened on Monday. Yeah, so I, I mean, I like to think about it as kind of starting last week. There's, um, as you mentioned, families have been coming very. They've been a constant presence at, at the, or they've maintained a constant presence at the Capitol. And last week there was one press conference um, with a couple lawmakers and um, of a lawmaker mentioned that the committee had the votes to pass it out. And that was kind of um, surprising. It was like a tidbit of news. And then a relative of a of, a, of one person from the Uvalde family said that um, Chair Ryan Guillen had told them that if there were enough votes to get out of committee, he'd put it on um, for a, a vote. But that hadn't happened. So Monday, we were kind of like keeping an eye on this deadline when very early in the day, there was a rally already happening, another press conference at 10 a.m., even before the House had convened. And then when the chamber convened, um, our, our colleague Eleanor was there and um, they announced the a committee meeting from the floor. So we kind of just um, scrambled to come up with a plan as she went there. And then they voted it out. And what was curious is that two Republicans joined the six Democrats on the committee in advancing the bill. And particularly one of them um, said in a statement after the fact, Dallas area representative, um, that after hearing so much testimony, he was compelled to vote the way he did, but he added that he wasn't naive that one law could solve this issue. But, you know, you kind of think about like, just like the constant cloak of grief that we kind of have just as a state that keeps experiencing this. Like Allen was horrific, but, you know, days before that, there was a similar shooting in Cleveland where it wasn't a public setting, but, you know, a man was asked to stop shooting his gun by a neighbor and he killed five of his neighbors. 
So I think it, it's been top of mind and it's been kept top of mind by both activists, families, but also the, the occurrences in the state. Right, right. So that was a very dramatic moment in the Capitol. We had, you know, the families rushing into the room, uh, tearfully kind of celebrating, uh, saying thank you and everything like that. But it was sort of a short-lived victory, right? Because then Thursday was the deadline for the House to pass bills out. In order for that to happen on Tuesday, it had to get on basically the House's agenda. And that was a uh, sort of roughly 10 o'clock deadline for that to happen. And the House was still in session at 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. And basically, we didn't see it uh, make that agenda. And, you know, sort of a dramatic moment in the Capitol. Can you just tell us a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, and also confusing, I'd add, because, you know, it's kind of like like people are trying to keep, on, like, stay on top of the, the issue. But then by, by late afternoon, it was becoming clear that, like, it may not happen because of some technicality. So it wasn't immediately clear, like come five o'clock Tuesday, if the calendars committee even had um, the committee report, which is essentially required before they could even put a bill on the calendar. So then it, like activists were both like demanding both chairs of both committees just act on it, not really knowing whose onus it was. But then the hour slowly ticked by and families kept rallying and chanting up until the very last minute where we saw a one one parent, um, uh, Brett Cross, have to had to be escorted out by um, authorities because he was apparently being too loud and the chants were even being heard in the full chamber so much that they they closed the, the second floor doors. Um, so the fight was there up until the last minute, but ultimately just there was no movement. The calendars committee met Tuesday evening, but they did not put this bill on the, the calendar. So how should people view this? I mean, Texas is clearly a gun-friendly state. Um, I don't think with the current legislature that is going to change anyway. There was a big kind of celebratory moment on Monday, as we described, but ultimately it did not lead to any kind of policy changes being made. I mean, what is the kind of community that was pushing for this feeling this week? Are they are they feeling like this is a sign of progress? Are they feeling like, you know, nothing is going to change here? Yeah, I can't speak for everyone, but we've seen already that families are are vowing to keep fighting, and they are already like maintaining that that they keep fighting, not only waiting till the session ends, but you know keep trying to push for this particular proposal because technically there are things lawmakers could do, although it would still be it would still face tall odds. Um, but I think part of what we're we're kind of slowly seeing is kind of like this willingness to have a conversation. And, you know, we saw another representative from North Texas talk about how he was willing to consider some gun control measures after the Allen shooting. Um, you know, there's a guy who said that he, he he's loves guns, he knows guns, he's around guns, and he said it's not about taking anyone's guns, but it just gets to a point where you don't want someone harming someone you love or someone loved by others. And, you know, I'm kind of reminded of what a one gun reform activist told me a couple of weeks ago. They were telling me how these shootings or in general gun violence becoming so prevalent that like the circles of separation or the degrees of separation are decreasing. And it's kind of almost getting to a point where it affects everyone. And that may just be what pushes at least the conversation to a start. 
Yeah, you know, and of course, uh, these mass shootings in 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 a lot of ways only make up a kind of tiny proportion of the gun deaths in Texas. We had a story um, by our colleagues um, Aaron Douglas and Alex Ford this week, in which you know it highlighted how in 2011 there were 9.8 gun deaths deaths by firearms is is the term they used uh, per 100,000 people in Texas. By 2021, that number had gone up to 15.3, so a more than a 50% increase in, you know, just a little bit over a decade in the number of these deaths. And and so, I don't know, we'll, we will see. We're still well below the peak um, in 1991, where that number was 20.4, but definitely a lot more conversation around this topic um, and perhaps a little bit more willingness. But as you said, even these bills, had they made it to the House floor, had they gotten a vote, which would have, you know... Uh, a favorable vote, which which felt feels unlikely, they would have then had to go to the Senate, where maybe there is maybe even more adamant opposition to this. So, um, you know, the the folks push, pushing for this certainly have a long way to go. All right, thank you, Alejandro, um, uh, for for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so also this week, TribFest tickets for 2023 went on sale. Joining us for a quick conversation about that is Matt Ewalt, our new Director of Events and Live Journalism for the Tribune. Hey, Matt. Hey, Matthew. Hey, uh, tell us a little bit about what we can expect from TribFest this year. Yeah, so we, as you mentioned, uh, went on sale Tuesday. What I'm excited about is building off of the momentum of last year's uh, festival, what uh, many said was the best festival they had experienced. And we've been able to uh, announce our first 20 speakers out of what everyone knows is uh, becomes a, a huge lineup of, of voices in national and state politics and policy that you know. And uh, as we joke, some voices you ought to know uh, based on the kind of impact we're having. So already announced uh, Maddie Parker, Senator Ted Cruz, uh, Dolores Huerta, Andrew Yang, a number of others. Uh, we'll be rolling out those names uh, over the coming weeks and months. But just, uh, I think, excited to bring Texans together into conversation on uh, on issues, again, across across politics and policy, uh, but issues that impact people's lives. All right. And this year, it will be in, again in downtown Austin, September 21st through 23rd. How can people get tickets? They can go to tribfest.org. And we want everyone to be part of the conversation. So I think it's helpful to remind folks that we have discounts for students, educators, uh, those in government and working for nonprofit organizations. Um, but go online, see our slate of speakers and uh, a lot of different options for how you can engage in TripFest. Very good. It's it's always one of my favorite weekends of the year. And I believe if you buy between now and May 31st, there is a discount as well. So that note, that that site again is tribfest.org. That's it. And you're right. Uh, these tickets are the cheapest you're going to get and um, do so before the 31st. All right. Thanks, Matt. You're welcome. Thanks, Matthew. That's about all the time we have today. Thank you to our sponsors, BP, the University of Houston College of Nursing and Texas Biomed. Thank you to Alejandro, to Dave, to Matt Ewalt, and to our producer, Justin. We'll talk to you next week. Don't have to
The Texas Tribune Spring Member Drive ends today. Now's the time to give. Your donation today will be matched by the Tribune's Board of Directors. Support the Texas politics and policy news you can rely on from Tribcast at texastribune.org slash donate.